Hey everybody, welcome to NashDev. We're a podcast about software engineering in the Nashville developer community. I'm Rodney Norris, and I'm with Corey Elliott, Nathan Hubbard, and Whit Morris. Today, we're going to be talking about site reliability engineering. Nate and Whit, thanks for being on. Uh, hey, thanks for having us. Yeah. So, who are you, and what do you do? <laughs> you got to go first. I don't want to go first. Uh, right. Um, I, I'm Wit, and I'm an infrastructure engineer at Simple, which is also known as Bank Simple. We're part of uh, BBVA, which is a much larger bank, but we're kind of one of the first online banks. And I'm working on projects involving sort of our next generation of infrastructure. So before I got there, we uh, Simple had gone through kind of three generations of infrastructure, and now we're working on the fourth. So... All right, so I'm Nathan. I work uh, as a site reliability site reliability engineer at Twitter. Um, I sure hope you know what that is. Uh, so, what site reliability engineer? It's a blog, or Twitter. Right? Tw- it's a I hope blog. you know what Twitter is. Yeah, micro something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, uh, I've worked there for almost four years. Um, Similar to what Wit said, I've, we've had a number of iterations of our infrastructure. It's, we're probably world famous for having the largest monolithic Ruby app ever uh, and are now a mostly Scala shop running on our own internal cloud called Mesos, which is now Apache project. Um, the with, stuff I work on specifically is... Uh, I was going to say with, with infrastructure managed in Python. Yeah. <laughs> It's all written in Scala except for the part that's not, and that's <laughs> everything else. <laughs> um, yeah, so the part I work on is push notifications and SMS. Um, so we do lots of these little events all the time, and that adds up to some really big numbers. We have a lot of um, SREs. What's an SRE? What's an SRE? So an SRE is a site reliability engineer? Yes. So what is site reliability engineering. I thought it was a super regular extraterrestrial. <laughs> yes, that too. Eat plenty of fiber. Well, I'll tell you, um, I sometimes don't know what it is myself, uh, even though that's my title specifically, but and, and because of that... Nathan I, is a site reliable engineer. Right, There's yeah. a true answer. Yeah, I, I guess so. But um, prior to this, I felt completely unprepared to come talk about this. And I was like, God, I got to get with it and look, you know, go make sure I got all the right words and the right nouns and stuff to use here. So I went to the Wikipedia page <laughs> to like look up what it, what is a site reliability engineer, the canonical definition, and I ended up editing the page. So <laughs> I, feel, I feel a little bit better about myself. Um, but basically, uh, to boil it down to like one sentence, uh, it's uh, using this, the practice of software um, engineering to, op- ap- uh, to operations. Um, so uh, it's... A little bit different from from DevOps. DevOps is more focused around like release cycle, and it's a little bit closer to ops, I think. And then uh, you say classic ops, and that's more like ops uh, classic. Yeah, ops classic. <laughs> it's site reliability engineering is new ops. Yes, <laughs> I just saw an article today that said, um, "Is site reliability engineer the new um, data scientist?" Question mark. You know, the, the big it's buzzword like, it's title. It's like, yeah, it's like I'm the engineer in the data lake. Right. <laughs> so I feel like I feel like sometimes it's so buzzword laden that it's hard to define what you're at, what it, what it really is. So I can, I can, I can, I can, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So if you had to define it using your words and not Wikipedia, what I the short version of that would be, 
Um, he just told you what he changed the Wikipedia to. Yeah. So <laughs> well, uh, software engineering principles applied to operations. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of ways, if you, I think we can kind of go back to around 2009, 2010, and you have a couple things happen. You have uh, John Alspaugh does a talk on web ops and then wrote a book on it too, I believe. Uh, there's uh, Jez Humble and Dave Farley wrote a book called Continuous Delivery. Um, which kind of, those two things were sort of, I feel like they were sort of a sea change in, if you think about the classic network administrator or network engineer, the classic sysadmin, um, Unix engineer, those sort of hybrids, they were, they were sort of people who maintained machinery for people who were not actually doing programming on the machinery or doing something very specific and academic, or there was kind of these like very... There's, there, there were walls in between the two. Um, part of it was because we as computer, computering people weren't trying to run things that were running a really long time that had a lot of things talking to them. So they weren't high availability. They weren't really distributed systems. They didn't run on multiple machines. They didn't require multiple data centers for a single application. That all kind of changed in like, like the mid nineties. Right. Mm -hmm. And we started to have sort of like really true distributed systems where I could do something on my browser and crash your whole thing in your data center, which might just be like a rack somewhere mm -hmm. at soft layer in San Jose. So yeah, that, that was my four, my first four under ops as I accidentally unplugged the Dalai Lama server mm. <laughs> in that very, that very data center. Wow. Um, but so, so that, that there's sort of a sea change, and like a lot was learned between, say, Netscape 2.0 and sort of like Google going public. Let's say that that period. Um, and so there started to be this sort of coalescence. I feel like about five years after that, where people are like, "We've learned things, and things are different, and we can actually organize ourselves differently. We can approach." how we measure things and observe things differently. Um, and those ideas started to coalesce, I feel like, with uh, John Alspaugh and uh, the ThoughtWorks crew around continuous delivery. There are some other sort of seminal works there. Out of that came the DevOps movement, which mm -hmm. kind of is a little bit like the agile software development movement. It kind of like came down off the hill and hit flat ground and went everywhere. <laughs> You know, and so there, there's. I think I, I like to think of DevOps as a set of practices which you could apply to something like reliability. Sort of like Agile is a set of practices you could apply to software development, and it doesn't really matter what kind of software development it is, or even like business development. If you like, it, look at Lean. Lean is kind of like, all right, we'll apply Agile to business. You know, and it's like you can take practices and apply them to a lot of different things, but site reliability, like re re reliability, I feel like is a very specific, um, sort of practice and with specific outcomes that you want to have. Mm -hmm. Nine nines or something, something like that. A couple of nines. Y you don't want your, yeah. So I think uh, fail whales are bad. Let me try to condense all the thought leaders I've listened to in the past <laughs> two or three years. I think it really comes down to it's 
it's it's about understanding what your business needs to be successful, however you define success, and then how you need the software to behave to achieve that. And then using engineering to make the software achieve that. So, uh, for example, uh, one of the things I feel very lucky to have, having done, like the great employer benefit was uh, Kyle Kingsbury, a.k.a. AFER, a.k.a. the subjugator of databases, um, teaches a distributed systems class. And we got to, he, he came to Simple and taught it last week, and I got to sit in for most of it. Um, and he was sort of talking about like everything. Like he went through like the papers. Like it was really cool because it started with like papers in theory, how you practically apply the papers in theory. Like, all right, this is what a vector clock is. This is how it works. Now forget that. This is what it's useful for. <laughs> this is what you can prove and disprove with it, and stuff. You know, sort of the practical application of like these really these things that like I'd read about and promptly forgotten. And now I know when to use them or when to like go actually figure out how they work. But one of the things he was talking about was metrics, and I think that metrics is a good example of sort of like reliability. Like you can measure tons of things, but only some of those are, are actually going to matter to your customers and matter to your business and matter to your observation of the health of your business. And if you measure a whole bunch of other stuff, you're going to waste a whole bunch of time weeding that stuff out. It's like you could take, you know, all, everything that's spat out of, uh, I don't know, name a monitoring mm. thing that graphite. Well, graphite, graphite, oh, new relic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. New relics. A good example. Like, all these things are like, we'll plug it in, we'll give you lots of data. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, all right, now I have lots of data. And it's just like hitting me in the face. And I mean, does that load matter? Like, what does the statistic mean? I don't even know what Apex is. And like, really what you care about is maybe like, well, how fast do my customers see, see the web page? And like, when, what is the worst time any one of my customers has? How many times are my customers having a really bad time when they're loading the page? And because those are the things that like affect whether they keep using your product or not. You're talking about the disconnect between not, uh, looking at system level metrics and what matters to the business level metrics. Yeah. And I, I think that sometimes you start from what matters to the business and then you work back to the system level. Mm -hmm. You work back and you say, okay, now I know if I lower the load on these machines by, say, spreading out my work across mm -hmm. multiple machines, I'll get better, I'll get lower latency in the system, and that will result in less failures in, in front of the customer. But if, you know, so. Mm -hmm. But if you just get the fire hose, you have to kind of, like, pull the pattern out. You have to, you have to do a lot of hard thinking versus kind of going from first principles, like, what is it we're trying to accomplish? What is, what is it we're trying to make reliable? What? So, so that brings me to a question. Um, what does site reliability engineering look like at like a big company versus a startup versus some medium company? And like, what's the day to day? You know, I think um, within the realm of your engineering unit, if your engineering unit is pretty small, you might not even have SREs. You might have somebody who that's their charge, but not their job specifically, or their job title. Um, when you get to a certain size, it makes sense to make that into a specific role and have even a couple people on that team. Because um, it's a little bit like DevOps where it's something that you want to 
teach to everyone, but then have a couple people charged with um, making sure that people making do yeah. the things they need to do to make it happen. Exactly. Um, of course, so sort of like stewards. Yeah, yeah. Like it's within within my org, we have our kind of top level goals that we make sure are taken care of. And we work with engineering to make sure that those goals are included in the plans for what engineering is working on too. So, um, but that's, you know, we're a fairly large um, engineering team, smaller teams. I think there, I it, a lot of it depends on how you organize things. So obviously when you reach a larger size, you have bigger organizational requirements mm-hmm. and more organizational options. You can move people around in all kinds of different ways or, People can move themselves around in all different ways, which sometimes is better. For example, Twitter has an SRE team. They also have an incident response team. Mm -hmm. Simple does not have a a group responsible for reliability. And it's something we've actually been talking about. Like we're, we're about 350 people. Like we want to, you know, have a million active users probably in the next three or four years. Like we're going to grow. We're planning on it. So we're sort of considering like, do we create a reliability team now, or do we try to make that more of the culture? Um, and whose responsibility is that? We have an, uh, an incident response system, which everybody is involved in across the, co- across the company, which is, uh, it's, there's great talk about it, uh, from last year's Monorama by Kurt Michael. Um, but we're, we're just kind of trying to figure out, you know, how, how that other side of it, like how you build systems so you don't have incidents. And we're, we're kind of, right now we're kind of air, it, going more toward the like do it through culture it's everybody's business yeah but i think there's a real value in some sort situations to you know having a team who does it mm-hmm. i've read a little bit of the google book and my feeling is that google a lot of ways the sres are sort of the gatekeepers you know you get an error budget and if you go over that they come knock on your door and are like what's up yeah there's always teams that just don't need it as much and there's other teams that need it a little more um, and that a lot of times that can have something to, more to do with just what they're running, what they're building than Right. Right. Or also maybe age of the team, like if they're brand new, haven't done this before sort of thing. So what are some of the tools that you use? Oh God. Maybe it's easier to like, <laughs> what does that a typical day look like yeah. and, yeah. and what's some problems you solved and what tools do you well, use to solve to, that problem? I was trying to think of tools that, that I could, that I could reference. And there are a lot of the tools I use are internal stuff that, uh, you know, that we've written, um, is that because you, you can you talk about things that are like the tools that can t- you can yeah, talk about? Yeah, I mean, we have like, uh, yeah, we have like, you know, server metadata based tools and we have classification tools that let us say like this, you know, let us make process decisions on like h- how to organize things on on which which machines or which instances have what properties. Um, uh, we have really great build tools that I can use to like write some software and get it out everywhere it needs to be. Um, I actually do a little bit of Puppet too, which I, I, so in my role, I manage some bare metal machines uh, and some cloud, some of our internal cloud stuff. And so I get to do a little bit of everything, which is kind of nice. Um, you all run Mesos too, right? Yes. Yeah. We have a large, large installation of Mesos. I heard maybe you ran Mesos. Maybe we wrote Mesos. I'm not sure. <laughs> so what is Mesos for someone who has no clue what you just said? Um, I, I can speak get, to that. Please do. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I think we're, we're, there's an interesting paradigm shift going on in infrastructure. And part of this is it used to be you had the data center and people like Nathan and then sometimes people like me. We go to the data center and we would, we would actually first we would build a machine 
And then we'd take it to the data center and we would rack it and we'd plug it in and then we'd test it. Hopefully it works. Hopefully it keeps working. Sometimes it dies. We have to go back to the data center. We have to call somebody at the data center and be like, hey, could you go turn it off and turn it on again? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I still do that every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, have I, a, mean, I work with a screwdriver. That's, that's, it's cool. That's still a thing, right? Yeah. And like Rarely. data centers are still a thing because uh, like running your own machine and having good um, I.O. is still a thing. Like there's still mm-hmm. certain things that... The next paradigm, I think, which was really AWS, like infrastructure on demand, like I can order a machine and I'll give you, they'll give me a VM. And maybe the step step before that was like virtual machines. Yeah, I was going to say VMware. Yeah, so you had VMware, right. Zen, all that. Zen. And then there was like, hey, we can hook this up to the internet and I can... I can I can tell you to put my SSH key on this machine. You can spin it up for me. Yeah. I can pay you money to run it, and then I can SSH in and do something. And that and that's gone grown crazily, right? Which is sort of amazing because the biggest problem in ops before I think was the whole I have to make a ticket to get a machine, and then I have to wait for some ops person to like build mm-hmm. the machine and take it to the rack, or like spin up the VM and make sure it's safe, and blah 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 blah. And like, and so part of the part of this sea change with DevOps and SRE and systems engineering and the explosion of distributed systems that we've seen over the last like six years. I feel like it's really driven from the ability for people to self-serve infrastructure Mm -hmm. because it allows people to very quickly start trying things that they wouldn't have been able to do before without having a whole team of people supporting them or having this very slow feedback loop of communication. So this is where we get to Mesos. So the next shift I think is right now, I can order a, a VM, and but what I'm really concerned about is I want to run something on that VM, or maybe I want to run several things on that VM. And if I run several things on that VM, I probably don't want them to like run into each other and stomp on each other's like resources and like overwrite each other's logs or cause each other's seg fault, that kind of stuff. I want them to be, shall we say, contained or sort of isolated from each other. In um, a container. <laughs> Containers are just namespaces in C groups, Nathan. <laughs> there are no containers. There is no cloud either. <laughs> There's no know. cloud. It's just somebody else's yeah, machine. It's just somebody else's computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. They're only yeah, exactly. So, so I think it really started with the Borg, right? So Google, yeah. Google had this problem where they're like, not the Star Trek Borg, <laughs> but it's, it's which is also really. That started a lot of things. It started a lot of things. <laughs> for it, people in the in Star Trek Borg, arguably, you know, was sort of inspirational for yeah, for Google's Borg. And even though they've they've kind of called it the system, sometimes known as Borg, so they don't have to deal with copyright. <laughs> and there's a paper about it, and it was kind of the, it was it, it, what it was was it was infrastructure on demand, but it was, it, and I haven't read the paper, so I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing what I think other people might have said. Is that is that but 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 the, but the idea that I think came out of this was that instead of um, thinking about machines as being the unit of infrastructure, I'll think about a running process just somewhere. Like I have a pool of resources and I want something to run and I want to have access to it and I want to control that access to it. So I want to be able to give it resources. So I want it to have a file system, maybe maybe 
you know, be able to specify whether it has good IO, bad IO. Um, I want it to have a network. I want it to have, I don't know, maybe yeah. run multiple processes mm -hmm. in the, in this sort of like little group of things. Um, so the Borg was kind of the first version of this and like Google built it and built it and built it and it got to a point that it was really valuable so they couldn't change it very much. And then they did some research in another direction in Omega and then Twitter was like, got a bunch of Google engineers and mm -hmm. said, hey, we should have a Borg because it's awesome. And then they built their own, which is Mesos. And it was slightly cooler than the Borg, which was a great recruiting Recruit tool because right. all the guys that built the Borg were like, dude, let's go work on the Borg too. Well, they couldn't do anything new to the Borg. Mm -hmm. So they ran into the problem they couldn't do anything new to the Borg. And then they also built this like new you know, Amazon competitor. And they're like, hey, we can retain people by building another Borg and we can try to have this like stalking horse for taking AWS's, you know, it's Google cloud, cloud bucks. Mm -hmm. so, so they started Kubernetes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Kubernetes and, and Mesosphere are sort of similar in the sense that they both provide you ways of running, of scheduling work to happen across n number of machines without worrying about where those machines are. So you can manage, you can manage what we call physical infrastructure, which is not really physical, it's virtual machines, but you can manage physical infrastructure, whether that be virtual machines or real machines, and have a separation of concerns from managing the scheduling of work upon those machines. Um, and so what does work look like? So work is like, Anything. work is a process, process yeah. or a group of processes that, that talk to each other to create some meaningful outcome. Okay. So, so I write <laughs> programs for a living. I'm a average that sounds, developer. That sounds like work. Okay. So I, I have, you can't a, automate that, but go I, ahead. I, I have a, yeah. a, a close. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so I, I have two tensors, things in my head. Tensors. So, so I have two things in my head, right? So one thing I do on a, on a common basis is in like the distributed system realm is I have, an app that is a processor that reads messages from a queue and then does something with those messages and maybe writes some things to a queue and maybe writes some things to a data store. How does that fit into Mesos or Kubernetes if I have like a Python app that runs somewhere? All right, so... Or does it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you want to talk about how it works in Mesos yeah, I mean, and I can talk about how it works in maybe yeah, Kubernetes? Yeah, so the, the, the basics are you need to build that into a package that can be run on the... Uh, on whatever the cloud, you know, Kubernetes, uh, Mesos, whatever. Um, build that into this, whatever its unit is. Um, you would use PEX, right? We would use PEX, yep. Um, actually, Pants generates the PEX for Python. I don't, I don't we should probably explain use. what those things are. Huh? Yes, please. No, what are once, Pants? Once again. What <laughs> are so they, uh, pants, is, pants is a build framework, Yes, right? it's a build system. Yep. It's a build system sort of like uh, somewhere, I think it's Python Ant, right? Pants. I have no idea. All I, I know is we didn't get like the canonical URL for it, and so we had to, it's called like Python dash pants. Like, <laughs> Pie pants. Yeah. Um, Bummer. And then PEX is Python executable. I think is the shortened form, and it's yeah, it's kind of like a jar for Python. Yeah. Okay. It's super cool. And do you does it? I can't remember all the specifics, but does it actually wrap the Python interpreter into it? Yeah. So well, right. um, I mean. I believe so. It basically, instead of executing Python, you're unzipping it right out of the gate and exploding into this thing that can then run. It's got all the dependencies and stuff inside it. So yeah, yeah. I've I've done a little bit of that with Elixir because Erlang does that. You can build an entire right. Erlang release 
and it has all your dependencies and it can run by itself without anything Which on the file system. Super freaking useful if you have if you have like a runtime mm-hmm. or an interpreted language mm-hmm. uh, like Node or Python or a runtime like Erlang. Yeah, and, and this is sort of the idea behind jars too, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so I have my my app that is gonna come up and mm-hmm. maybe I want to run run one and then. Yeah, so you package this thing. You div- so you've got to, you know, there's you all those properties. You don't just want to run one. Like, are, well, don't you want to be reliable? Yeah, okay. So, 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 so I want to start <laughs> with, three. like, four, right? And then if, if if the message queue gets really high, then I want to add some more. So that then I package this thing into some package, a PEX or something. And you also have to define kind of what it's going to be doing externally. So right, like, it's got does, some it, metadata does it need to have a TCP port open? Mm-hmm. Yeah, does it need to... Talk, you know, and have some resource it depends on how much RAM do you think it needs CPU. And you can kind of, especially when you're getting started, you can guess at those things and mm-hmm. watch how it performs um, and adjust it. Uh, okay. But yeah, so you define all those properties into whatever unit that system needs, you know, mm-hmm. um, Kubernetes, Mesos, whatever. Um, even Docker is kind of similar. Kind of yeah, similar do- Docker is kind of sniffing in that area. Yeah. And, and because this area sort of commodifies containers, mm-hmm. so... There's not a lot of business there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you see, so build this thing, yeah. and uh, and then you schedule to run on that system. It, you upload it, whatever the method is, get gets into the system. Usually, the, the we, usually they'll be integrated the build system. Um, Docker, it's not. You define like a file, then you build it and tell Docker, you know, fire it up. Well, um, Do- Docker has like, I think they just released like built-in Swarm, which is sort of a very bare bones kind of scheduling. Mm. But there's uh, like I don't pay a lot of attention to Docker, unfortunately. I mean, I run it at home, but I don't pay a lot of attention to it. <laughs> I have to, I yeah. So I've had to pay an unfortunate amount of attention uh, to it. My doorbell runs in Docker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like a, a checkbox on your nerd card. I can, right, it right. Probably just became one. Okay, so, so I now have a package and I, I, by next year. Yeah. But. So, so I have a package and I define some metadata and yeah. uh, so schedule. So I want this thing to always be up. Yep. What does that right, mean? Right, right. That would be part of the metadata. So okay. you're like so. So then I deploy it and then it's just it's running in Mesos and well, provided it launches. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean maybe you put a bug in it and yeah. it's just gonna fail yeah. and yeah. then hopefully the system will tell you, hey. That didn't start. This did not work. And that's part of the properties too. You say stuff like, you know, I want to have always have five instances running, okay. uh, or whatever, whatever the deal is, and or always one, or always not less than some other number, but not more than this other number. Or, or <laughs> if this other thing isn't running, I don't need to run anything because this thing does nothing without that. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. That's or, or this is the schedule at which it will run. It'll run at right. this hour, uh, one time, or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah. if it's like a cron job or something, you can uh-huh. do that. That's interesting. Yep. Okay. So that that explained a whole lot for me. Uh, so let's go back to like, what does a typical day look like for you mm. doing this stuff? All right. Like, so like, what would you say you do here? Yeah. So <laughs> um, you kind of have your your list of long term projects, uh, similar maybe, to maybe, software maybe engineering. Back out to like, what does a typical month look like? Okay. Yeah, way better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's fine. What's that look like? <laughs> well, <laughs> both of us take call, which, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people who are probably listening to this do not take call. Yeah. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah. The pager? You just said take call? Take call, yeah. Uh, you mean take on call? Right? Yeah, uh, take on call. On call, on call. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Um, must, it, it's simple. They must pare it down to the most base level <laughs> words. <laughs> you're you're like, where's on. the on? You're always on call. <laughs> yeah. Just call. 
Yeah. So, um, usually being in, uh, on-call rotation is part of the deal. Um, it, uh, it depends on the kind of team you're on, but a lot of times that can be shared across your engineering team too. And that's a lot of that's education process. And um, I'd argue that that's a pretty important part of reliability because that's how yeah. you have realization about how your, <laughs> your system really tells you how it's acting. Yeah. What well, also motivates engineers to people that write the code to not get paged by the code. Um, right. And it's a, it's pretty effective. It, it's, it's so amazing to see, you know, uh, new people that join the team immediately within their first time being on call, opening tickets to fix like little things that are annoying. That's great. Yeah. Um, Cause a lot of times, you know, in ops, you've been, you've been wearing that pager for so many years that they just you're like I know that I just like, do this and yeah. that and wave my hands in the air and then turn this box over yep. and then shout at this person and it starts working again it's like the bullets in <laughs> the matrix with Neo <laughs> right. the pages I can do this now and so and they you know whatever don't affect me as much but man when you wake up uh, uh, somebody who wrote some code at 2 o'clock in the morning they, they're motivated to fix it um, it gets to the point where some like uh, Michael Gorsuch who's the the infrastructure director at Simple, we were sitting in a bar, just kind of hanging out, and he's like, wait, something's happening. And we're like, did you get paged? He's like, no, no, just something's wrong. <laughs> like, opens up, yeah. his, opens up his computer, and like, something was wrong. It's like, a, opened an incident. It's and amazing, but it. you can totally get intuition. <laughs> you totally can. I can feel it when stuff's yeah. about to go down. It's weird. Yeah. Sorry. Say the question. Oh, yeah, so we're... Um, what does a month a, look what's like? What's a month look like? Um... Let's go back to day. Do way <laughs> easier. Yeah. <laughs> I, this time scales are too long. You talk about quarter, sure. Um, but I, I, let's say just a day. Um, there's a, a number of things that since it's so, sort of since SRE is is a little bit of long term projects and operational duties. Typically, I take care of those um, operational things first. So I look at what's outstanding, what may be paged overnight, what cron outputs I got that I need to like look at um, and take care of whatever kind of tactical stuff that needs to be taken care of. Uh, depending on the team you're on, on my team, I get some stuff from external folks. So I'll look for any of that, see if there's been any external questions about something, uh, answer those. And then I get into my project work, whatever that is. Um, I probably have less meetings than the typical SRE because my team, uh, we... Um, We've been working on this infrastructure for a pretty long time. Uh, we know each other really well. We know it needs to be done. We don't have to have a lot of meetings about it. But, um, yeah, and I spend my afternoons working on project stuff and trying not to uh, trying to concentrate when my kids are screaming. Um, again, that's a work-from-home deal. But, uh, that's interesting. Um, so you're talking it doesn't about sound that different stuff, than, yeah. than SWE. It's not yeah. that different than from SWE, I think. From what's SWE? From being a software engineer. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, you every morning as a software engineer, you, you, you wake up, you look at your bugs, to come in, I, I mean, I guess, right? Well, first, first you have your coffee. Yeah. yeah, well... First you have your coffee. At some yeah. point, go cry in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's after you look at the bugs. Yeah. So, I, actually, it is sounding kind of familiar the more we I don't do had. anything until I have the coffee going. Yeah. Like, nothing. Yeah. And peanut butter. I, I, I recently got a coffee machine that I can reset the night before, so I can wake up to coffee, and it is the greatest thing in the history of ever. I, I, just, I just ran it by my wife the other day. You know, our grinder... I could set that up uh, on the system so my server can trigger it to come on at a certain time in the morning. Your when coffee it, could run on Docker, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's exactly what it would... Yes. Well, anyway. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. You're like, 
Home reliability. Let me, let's talk about home reliability. <laughs> that's actually... IoT. <laughs> anyway. That's pretty fat. It's actually a really good exercise to talk about IoT and reliability because yeah. a lot of people don't, don't grasp the... They're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to set up this thing at my house. Like, let's just use a really good example of like a, a Hue light bulb and something on your, um, on your phone to tell your... Your phone can see that you're at home, so it turns on your Hue light bulb. Well... The, the the way this is supposed to work is you walk into your home, your phone see, uh, notices that its location has changed to be at your home, so it makes an outbound call to the internet um, and uh, tells, you know, like IFTTT that you're at home now, and then that thing fires off something to he, to, to fill up Hue system, uh, which comes back across your internet, goes into your house, and turns your light on. And you're like, well, it seems like there's a two or three minute delay from the point at which I'm home and the light bulb coming on. Let's well, talk why about is that? latency. Yeah, well, not only that, but just dependencies. I mean, right, right, it has yeah. to, your internet has to work first. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you're on Comcast or not, but that's not always the case. Uh, so not only that, but your GPS has to work. Right. Uh, yeah, your location yeah. stuff has to work. And sometimes and, and, you turn and, off and Wi-Fi. Well, you, well, you could set it to where when your Wi-Fi accurate. connects to your home Wi-Fi SSID. See, now you're getting now you're getting closer. Mm, you that's, idea, that's a little yeah. bit more reliable yeah. than, than waiting for your phone's location stuff to maybe catch up to yeah. where you are or not work at all. Yeah. Mine never catches up. I'm like down the street perpetually. <laughs> yeah. I get occasionally mine will tell me, uh, you're at the playground now. And I've got it set up just to just to see this stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's like, <laughs> like uh, a thousand meters away. I'm, um, but I think thinking about uh, those sorts of things and how they play in your daily life is part of reliability. And it's something that, you know, you start getting into this stuff, you start seeing the real impact from it. Um, and that's basically what we do, but I just said right. much Yeah, like I, I, I have some home automation stuff, but I haven't hooked any of it up because I, I want to do like all internal network. Yes. Like I want Z-Wave and I want to run a Raspberry Pi home automation server and like never talk to the internet. Don't, don't use a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. They're, oh, okay. They're junk. I love my raspberry. I've no, got no, like, I've got like great. six of them. <laughs> yeah, I have, like, I have ten of they're them. They're crap. I, I have, love them. No, no, they're great. They're great for individual nodes doing sensing, but yeah. I wouldn't run one as a server with like open oh, okay. on it or anything. Oh, okay, they're just not real reliable for that sort of stuff. Or as an example of that, um, I use my Raspberry Pi as a detector to tell me when there's been a brownout in the neighborhood because even the slightest power blip, my Raspberry Pi eats it. Some of that's the power supply. Some of that's the Raspberry Pi itself. Yeah. Um, but that. They are twitchy little bastards. Yeah. Um, I, I gave one to my nephew with a couple of programming books, and he's like, "It turns off sometimes. It just well, dies on try, me." Try not plugging a keyboard into it that has a bunch of lights. Yeah. <laughs> that's I just can't. I, I if I have Why it plugged would you into ever the use Wi-Fi. Why power on that? Yeah. Oh god. Okay. <laughs> if I have it plugged into the Wi-Fi, I have to choose keyboard or mouse. Yeah. Yeah. It's always keyboard. Yeah. All right. So that's interesting. So we, earlier you mentioned uh, like metrics and stuff like that. And that's something that I've probably gotten more into as I've uh, gotten to my later in my career or, or as I've had more distributed systems and things like that. Um, so like if, if you're getting into that, what are some important things to look for? Like I, I usually look for like for backend stuff that's reading messages off a of queue. I'm looking for like, you know, how long does it take to process messages? How many messages are in flight? Dead letter right, queue. Right, right. Uh, and those are, are you're, you're probably using SQS and using CloudWatch, yeah. Yeah. And then for like front end stuff, it's just like, you know, how long do endpoints take to run? And then drilling down into all that and trying to find bottlenecks and load times. Is that like where you start? 
It really depends on the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. As, as stated earlier. And, and I, and I think that, um, which is to say, yes, which is to say, yes, yes, that's (laughs) a good place to start start doing it. Yeah. Just start measuring stuff. Well, start measuring stuff, but like it's science, right? It's like, I have a hypothesis about what is important to my system. Let me measure that. Let me see if, if I can have a qualitative or quantitative improvement. Um, I think there was a talk by Roy Rappaport uh, at Monotrauma last year and he was talking about implementing canaries and somebody asked, asked him afterwards, like what, what metrics should we have for a canary? And he's like, well, you can, you know, you could do a lot of different stuff. He's like, you could probably get by with just, uh, latency and error rate. So you, you know, the idea behind a canary or What's blue, a canary? blue, blue, green deploy. Let me bird. tell you, it's a yellow bird. It's a yellow bird. Yep. They don't have them first. on Twitter. They only have blue birds. Right, it, that's exactly it. It dies, it dies first. first. So, the idea with canary deploys, and actually, I wore this shirt because I felt like it was kind of like an some SRE programming that I did. I like I, that shirt. Uh, after going to Monorama, I went to the. What's do- on your shirt? It's a it's the Docker Hackathon shirt from last year, and it's the it's a commit strip comic, and it's got the guy, he's kind of like. He's got his pit crew feeding him pizza as he's hack, hacking away. <laughs> um, but 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 we tried to implement this system at the Docker Hackathon that Roy Rappaport talked about. And he was, he's what, how Canary works is you um, you launch your new code and you run it side by side with your old code and you watch the metrics and you watch the logs and you hand test it or you know depending on the scale you're operating at it sort of depends on what you do i mean it's kind of an old technique like Mm -hmm. let's run both things send some traffic to both and see what happens um now as you start to scale up and you're running a lot of web heads or a lot of endpoints um you can do interesting things in the sense that if you have a lot of traffic where you can use statistics to analyze how things are performing and you can then say, okay, we, we're going to roll, roll out these, you know, maybe like 20 units and put 10% of the traffic to them. And then we can, like, we, we can roll out a percentage of our total fleet that's handling this particular concern and shift a percentage of our traffic to it and see how the metrics look and then slowly, gradually go up. And this is, this is what's called a blue-green deploy. Um, where you slowly shift up and if things look badly, you shift back. Yeah. Uh, so, so we, we, we attempted to build a system like this at the Docker hackathon where we had a, had a load balancer. We had this sort of crazy JavaScript interface that looked like a DJ mixer and you could deploy something and then like to crossfade it over to the other thing. (laughs) We actually got it working, which is kind of cool. We never got it, uh, auto DJing your, your deployments but we we have a system like that uh does not have a javascript slider <laughs> there's no crossfader no there's no JavaScript. you can't go wiki wiki there, wiki, is, wiki. Th- there is but you kind of have to commit it <laughs> there has to be kind of a trail yeah yeah that's, that's really cool it's something similar is built into kubernetes now where you can do rolling deploys mm-hmm. where you can say all right i just put up this version it's sitting here let's roll over stop let's roll back and you know which I, I think is kind of one of the cool things about kubernetes is they they're building a lot of these sort of ops sre patterns right into the piece of software that you're using so 
as a developer, you can kind of understand how Kubernetes does it and you don't have to worry about building it yourself. Nice. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I definitely like know what all these things are now and can see it in my job. Like I do some of that and I know other people who do some of the other, other stuff of that. And when I do deploys, these things happen. So yeah, yeah. now I know what you do. I've been uh, trying to figure out how to build something like that for my house, for my, for my I, IIT I, stuff. I can help you deploy Kubernetes at your house if oh, you want. Man. <laughs> We're going to need something slightly larger than a Raspberry Pi, though. Yeah. Two um, Raspberry Pis. Yeah. <laughs> Running in a parallel. Raspberry Pi cluster. Yeah. 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 Ten Raspberry No. Um, cool. Anything else? Any other questions? Anything else you want to cover? I'll say one more thing. Yeah. Um, when we were talking about how, the, how things have changed over time, yeah. the unit of computing used to be a metal box with processors and RAM and hard drives in it. And then at some point in the late 90s, that unit of computing changed to a box with metal processors in it that could run a whole bunch of operating systems on it. And so then it kind of became the operating system that was the unit of computing. Right. And then uh, you jump to... You know, AWS, that, that, that technology enabled AWS to become a service that Amazon could sell. So the unit of computing became um, number of CPUs and OS. And with this new container um, shift. Modality. Yeah, the unit of computing is no longer even an operating system. And, you know, there's a ton of overhead in maintaining an operating system. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's your classic ops stuff right there. Right. Uh, Oh man, and um, uh, so now that now that we're away from having to maintain the, the the operating system, worry about the libraries, all that stuff, the unit of computing is much smaller. It's the it's the the specific task you're trying to run and the resources it consumes. Um, I think that's that that's enabled this shift to be able to treat operations uh, the way you would with uh, computer science instead of looking at it more with, you know, I have these number of hardwares. And these number of softwares, right? Right. It actually it actually becomes more of a logistical, less of a bureaucratic constraint. Like I have to like get these people to give me money mm -hmm. and get some help, and then I have to figure out how to communicate with these people. And it becomes more like, all right, I have all the thunderbolts. Where do I throw them? Mm -hmm. Picks. We'll do picks. Oh, sure. I, I'll, I'll go first, and, and y'all can think. Um, so my pick for this week. Uh, Vice has a channel called Viceland, and they have a show called Cyber War, which is actually... Is it an IRC channel? No, no, no just no. kidding. It's a cable <laughs> channel. Uh, so Vice is a news network. Uh, you have a Mac uh, website, and they have, they have a show on HBO, but now they have a whole channel on at least Comcast, and they have a show on there that I've been enjoying watching called Cyberland, which is actually like about like uh, InfoSec and stuff like that, and it's actually good. It's actually oh, cool. very technical. Do they say cyber a lot? I don't think they, they say... They talk about how tough the cyber yeah, is. That, yeah, it's, it's not like the presidential debates, which are terrible. Uh, but no, it's like... But those were amazing. Yeah. <laughs> amazing yeah. and depressing. For my tax dollar, that was, you don't get better TV. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so my pick for this week is Cyber War, because it's cyber really War, good. Cool. Uh, they, right they go into things like uh, Anonymous and Stuxnet and... <laughs> uh, God, what are some other episodes have been on? Uh, I can't even remember, but that it's really good. That stuff is super interesting. Yeah, I, it's, my team is, uh, I'm, I call myself the insecurity engineer because the other three people are security engineers. <laughs> that stuff's fascinating and horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fascinating and horrifying. And like for a, a, a television show to actually be 
decently technical enough to where it actually like as an as a software engineer this makes sense to me yeah uh it, it probably would make no sense to like average joe person but i think it's kind of cool to have something like that on tv it makes me really happy that you as a software engineer are interested in watching shows about security <laughs> that's really good <laughs> it's important well, well, this is like the horror stories of security, that. but but that's that's what makes you think about. Yeah, it. you need yeah. to have the horror stories, otherwise yeah. nobody. Yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. Cares. Everybody's like everything's safe and happy, and it's like <laughs> no, it's not. I don't see how you can be a software engineer and think everything's safe and happy. Yeah. It's like <laughs> yeah, but by being a web developer, you know all of this stuff is just like held together with tape and glue and can fall down at any moment. <laughs> it makes me want to call up places and be like. Do you be crypt your passwords? Yeah. What about credit card information? <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. So, so I have a hilarious story on that, that oh, slight tangent. So I, I, I went to work for a place, and, like, my first week there, I'm looking at the database, and I look, I'm looking at the endpoints, and there's an actual endpoint deployed. It was for, like, a... a let me not talk about that. Anyway, uh, and there was an endpoint end point called slash password. No, no. but it was th- there was an endpoint where any user, any authenticated user, could then query and get an array of all the users, including their hashes, their password hashes, wow. which were only hashed once. <laughs> That's super amazing. Sweet. It was super, and, and I'm like, we this should be this is bad, right? <laughs> and we did a hot fix immediately to remove that endpoint. This it's is, just something some developer added to debug something, and then it got left in. This is advertisement for uh, Nate and I's podcast yeah. called yes. "Every Day Is Halloween in Tech." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you want to go? Sure. Corey? Uh, my pick for today is Domain Driven Design by Ooh. Eric J. Evans. It's one of my favorites. It's old. I think it came out in about 2004. But I, I read it at least every year. Um, I really think that it's important. Organization. Organize your code, people. <laughs> Wit? I dig it. Yeah. Um, I'll have to check it out. Um, this is tough, as you said it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Now's the last. time to panic. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> is no. the pressure building, Nate? No, I got like three. I'm going to go with uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. There you Whoa. go. Oh, I love that. What is that? The mean? other, the other, that would be paired with a close second to hanging out with, uh... oh, no, forget that. But yeah, <laughs> it's mindfulness-based stress reduction is a, um, it's an approach to meditation. There's actually classes taught in it. Um, it's based on a book called Full Catastrophe Living, very mm-hmm. ops-ish in its title, which is by uh, John Kabat-Zinn. So is that like classes online or classes in Nashville? You can do both. There are classes in Nashville. They have, have it. At, I'm taking one right now at the Osher Center uh, at Vanderbilt. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and it's just, I think it's kind of just helpful for dealing. Like we, we deal with... We speak to these entities that are very inflexible and sort of unpleasant in their nature. And I'm speaking of computers here. Um, and <laughs> and then we do, we talk to a lot of other people who spend a lot of time talking to these kind of whole things. So like ha- developing ways to sort of communicate better with each other after talking to the, to the difficult machines is I find that MBSR is good for that. Nice. I will definitely look into that. It's not discrimination to call them machines. <laughs> it's okay. Roko's Basculus is going to hunt me down and torture me for eternity by making me watch YouTube ads. Isn't that what's going to happen? 
Huh? Your turn, Nate. All right, my turn. Um, my goal is to upstage Jason. So uh, I'm, <laughs> the, my pick is super cavitation. Uh, super cavitation. Uh, so cavitation is what happens when... Wait, what was that? Mantis shrimp. <laughs> cavitation. Oh, yeah, okay. All right, so back up. trip, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally, I know what it is now. The little clicks, right? Kaboom. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. So that's cavitation. Um, but for the people that aren't in the room to see the cool arm movement that Corey did, uh, cavitation is when uh, something moves faster um, than the medium can support. It's through a medium faster than the medium can support it, so something else happens. And so in the case of water, which is where you typically hear about cavitation, um, it forms micro air bubbles pockets and they rapidly expand and collapse and can destroy, for example, the propeller. So if you have a propeller, that's a poor design. Um, it will come out of the water after use and it'll just be destroyed. Um, and I first learned about this when I had a pool pump and the pool pump was making crazy noises and I asked the pool guy to come and he's like, Oh, it's cavitating. I'm like, wow, they say that in like the hunt for red October. That's some cool <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and uh, then I, I, I was on uh, Wikipedia reading about this and I came across uh, super cavitation. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's super cavitation? Well, super cavitation is kind of uh, on the, uh, it's, a, a, it's a cr- uh, making that happen on purpose uh, to, to do something with it. So um, I don't know if I should just keep talking about it because it's super interesting or tell everyone to go research super cavitation because uh there's some fascinating stuff on there and when you get to the part where you're reading about uh russian underwater missiles then you know you've hit uh hit the right spot so did you hear about the ubs the ubs failure last week Mm -hmm. they took out a data center because they tested their fire extinguishers and the force of the sound wave this is not exactly cavitation but it's close they took out all their hard drives oh my god so it's sort of the there's the there's a great video online where Brendan Gregg yells at the side of a server and, like array, yeah. and then shows the metrics as mm-hmm. as the disc as performance, performance drops, goes up yeah. and down due to vibration. But Shh, the servers are working. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they don't like to be yelled at. <laughs> Which is weird because I'm the one wearing earplugs when I go in the data center. <laughs> cool. Well, thank y'all very much. Thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. Woohoo. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Nash Devcast. And if you have something to say, be sure to go to nashdevcast.com slash call in and leave a message. This has been a production of Relationary Marketing. Our show was edited this week by Rodney Norris and our producer, Clark Buckner. This episode was sponsored by Strongloop, an IBM company. Strongloop helps you compose APIs, build and deploy and monitor node apps. You can learn more at strongloop.com.